could talk about companies like Amazon. You know, Bezos had a hard time raising money early on, but when he was able to start articulating that it was not just about selling a few books online, it was about understanding and having the logistics and cracking the code there so he could expand into other products and why the word Amazon was used because it's the jungle and there's a lot there. Mm -hmm. That's where people got attracted to that and started to sync up and provide the investment capital that Amazon needed to be what it is today. You have found Authentic Business Adventures, the business program that brings you the struggle stories and triumphant successes of business owners across the land. We are locally underwritten by the Bank of Sun Prairie. Downloadable audio episodes can be found on the podcast link found at drawincustomers.com. Today, we're welcoming slash preparing to learn from Patrick Donahue, the founder and CEO of Hill Capital Corporation. So Patrick, how is it going today? It's great. How are you doing, James? I'm doing very well. So tell us for the listeners at home, viewers at home, what is Hill Capital Corporation? Hill Capital Corporation is an investment fund. We invest half a million to a million dollars directly in entrepreneurial-led businesses. Uh, and we are investing out of fund two right now, which is $25 million fund. Wow. Is that just a bunch of investors or is that government funded by any means or grants no. or anything like that? <laughs> It is you never know. They're handing money out left and right. So. No, yeah, no. It's it's all individuals. It's all hard-earned money. And many of our investors are multi-generational business owners. So that makes us very unique as well. So uh, we really uh, not only provide capital, but the community, you know, in a, in a network for the entrepreneurs, the companies that we invest in and support them in their journey. Uh, because what we really care about is that they have optionality. Uh, you know, whether they want to build their business and hand it over to the next generation or if they want to sell it or whatever the case may be. So we've got some unique ways that we support and structure our portfolio companies. All right. Very cool. Yeah. So the the investors that you get, are they because you're investing in small business? So are they looking for a return over the course of one or three oh, years or is it longer term? Well, definitely longer term. And, you know, the golden standard is. Uh, any investment fund really needs to outperform the S&P 500, you know, mm -hmm. what somebody could get in the stock market. And I talk about that with our with our stakeholders a lot. And so uh, they need a reward that uh, gives them the economic incentive to do something other than put their money in a mutual fund or an ETF. And sure. so, you know, if you kind of think about big num big picture numbers, you know, one could expect eight, maybe 12% on an annualized basis from the S&P 500. So uh, our investors need to expect something um, higher than that. And so okay. that's what we look to achieve is something that mid to high uh, teen returns net to our investors. Sure. So one thing I've always been curious about with investment funds like this yes. is if I'm an investor, I throw some money at this thing. Is the idea that I'm contractually obligated to keep my money in there for a finite period of time? Because it's not liquid. Correct. It's not liquid. And so how, how funds work, generally speaking, is that somebody commits a million dollars, but there's a drawdown period. So uh, and it's usually two to four years and the fund life is usually 10 years. So, you know, somebody commits a million dollars, they might have a couple hundred thousand dollars a year drawn down. Um, and then that money is fully invested. And then there's a harvest period where they're getting a return on that money that they invested. So when you say drawn down, you mean it's going from essentially their bank to Correct. the investment? Yeah. So okay. let's just say you committed a million dollars. 
then uh, you're not putting that million dollars in that fund day one like you would buy a mutual fund per se. Oh. Uh, they would basically do a capital call and say, hey, James, um, you know, we've got a deal we're buying and so on and so forth. We need to draw down 250000 of your $1 million commitment. And then, All right. and then there's if somebody can't live up to that commitment, then there's, you know, there's basically penalties or or things like that that would dissuade somebody from doing that. Sure. And then yet you said a 10 year life. Mm -hmm. But I imagine is that from this point in time or 10 years from the time that the investor committed? It can actually be both. But a lot of times it's from once the first drawdown happens is when the clock starts ticking. Okay. It all depends on the fund docs. And there's, uh, I, I I have a very good friend that's in real estate and I was chatting with him while we were in Denver the other week and uh, he was sharing insights on various structures and, you know, like real estate, they've got a lot of different ways they they do things. So oh, it yeah. all depends on the structure and, and how they put it together. And those are very important points for any investors that are looking to invest in, um, you know, a private fund. Uh, to understand what the mechanics are and how that all works. And do the investors get any say into what you're investing in or they're just essentially investing your fund to trust you to do or you and your team, I imagine? It's a it's a combination. There's a high level of trust, of course, by default. Uh, but we do have a an investment committee and LPs are investors are part of that investment committee. And we also have our investors who are just part of uh our community. And in our community, we call them ambassadors. Uh, they are advisors to us and to our portfolio companies. And so they can really be as involved as they want to be. Uh, we love and encourage people to be involved in Hill Capital because that's what makes us special is when those individuals are connecting with the founders and entrepreneurs of our portfolio companies, that's where, frankly, the magic happens. All right. uh, you know, when they're sharing expertise and insights and other connections, that's where it really gets fun. Interesting. Yeah. So tell me, as far as finding the businesses to invest in, what are the ground rules for what you're looking for? I imagine it's not food trucks or something like that. Well, we are investing um, in diverse businesses and intentionally doing so. We want to have a diverse portfolio. So uh, in fund one, we have everything from a, uh, a company that is creating human liver cells and that's oh, wow. called Cytotherics, and uh, Mayo and others are investors, and that's based out of Rochester, Minnesota. Uh, and so that's a very complicated biotechnology company. And we've also invested in a uh, baby store uh, on Broadway in Little Falls, Minnesota, and it's called Babies on Broadway. And Adele built up that business in Little Falls, expanded to another location, but has built a uh, a heck of an e-commerce store. And she has customers all over, especially in Naples and California, because uh, her customers, she has very high-end baby um, baby products. And her customers love to buy from babies on Broadway in Little Falls, Minnesota. And, and a lot of them will talk to Adele directly. So she's oh, very high-touch customer service. All so right. It, it has been uh, very diverse in, in the companies we've invested in. That's what we love. And that's what makes it fun. How do you find them? Because there's small businesses everywhere starting, coming and going. Exactly. Well, that is why, you know, like in your your hometown and area, like in Madison, Wisconsin, I've, I've come in and given talks and have connected with, you know, economic development and the small business development center. So we, over the years, have done things to make personal connections with events and have sponsored events and so forth. But at the end of the day, James, 
it's word of mouth, it's referrals. So, you know, you may bounce into a company and say, hey, you should know Patrick and give him a call at Hill Capital. And that's the vast majority of the, the companies that we're interfacing with on a weekly basis. We All do right. get, uh, we show up on lists, of course, and so forth. And we will get entrepreneurs that come to us cold and we'll um, hit the apply button on our website. And what's nice about us is we've built out our team where uh, we will take meetings with everybody. We We get to know businesses because... Our thesis is that uh, it may not be a fit for both parties today, but over time it may be. And so we're not hesitant to get to know an entrepreneur, you know, uh, wherever they are in their journey. Sure. Uh, and so that's important part of it is, is word of mouth and really being respectful of the entrepreneurs and where they are in their journey. So we try to help them wherever we possibly can. So you talk about where the entrepreneurs are in their journey. Is the idea that you're investing in in businesses that are startups, as well as, I mean, some form of growth mode of some kind. Yeah, I guess. the majority of our companies are doing two to five million in revenue when we invest okay. and are looking to get to 10 to 20 million in revenue. That's our bread and butter. Uh, Cytotherics, when we invested, was pre revenue. Um, we invested in a number of companies that were well below a million dollars when we invested, uh, like Go Route out of Rochester, Minnesota. Um, he had a few hundred thousand dollars in revenue, but he clearly had a product that was being purchased and used in the marketplace. And it was crystal clear that our money could be utilized for sales and marketing to help him get go route to the next level. And that's exactly what has happened. Uh, what we like to say, James, is that we will take execution risk. We don't take concept risk. So if something is really early stage and startup phase, we would point them to Generator, which started in, you know, in, in Milwaukee, Madison area. Mm -hmm. um, and we'd point them to accelerators like that, uh, because that's a much better starting point if somebody's really at the concept phase than, than we would be. Sure. Okay. That makes sense. That makes yep. sense. Tell me, when you're looking at the 10-year fund versus the business investment, I'm trying to think even all the businesses that I've been involved in. 10-year plans are just, you don't know what's going to happen in 10 years. Well, and that's just as the fund. I mean, a lot of times the 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 time of our investment is five to seven years. Okay. So, and we're really, and what's unique about us, James, is that we have a proprietary structure that we use. It's called a VC equity-based note. This equity-based note is structured so we can get paid back over time. So we don't have to wait for and hope and pray for the company to sell for cash someday because that's the elephant in the room. And it's a big reason why I wrote the book, Breakout Valuation, is to start to shed light on this. But once somebody sells stock to an investor like an angel or a VC, they're on a path to have to sell that business for cash. Mm -hmm. And that's that has its own set of challenges. Uh, especially because time is no one's friends when you're when you're calculating an annualized rate of return, right? So that's where some you know some odd things can happen where people are making decisions based on trying to you know repay or 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 provide liquidation to their early shareholders versus what they may have wanted to do, which is actually build a lifestyle business or a business that's multi-generation and hand it over to their to their kids someday. So that's why we think very differently than traditional investors about how to invest in and support uh, founder entrepreneurial businesses. 
Yeah, that is interesting as far as the exit strategy or the exit goal for a business when you have investors versus when you're just on your own. Exactly. I imagine when you're talking about the, was it liver cell business? Yes. Okay, I imagine something like that. They probably, I don't know what's all involved with that, but I imagine it's expensive. It is very expensive, but that's also very different too. They have very sophisticated investors involved like the Mayo Clinic. And they have a professional board of directors, people who've been there, done that. So that's kind of on the far end of the spectrum for us in terms of like companies that are truly, um, you know, venture backable and and could be very big companies. Um, Most of our portfolio are companies like Adele with Babies on Broadway and uh, and, uh, Mercedes Austin, who founded Mercury Mosaics that makes custom made handmade tile. Uh, and beautiful mosaic kits. So again, that's us though. We love diverse, you know, a diverse portfolio. We love to support the entrepreneurs, John Swart and, um, and Anna Haugo at, uh, uh, at uh, Cytotherix are, are, are some of the best um, and in Mercedes and so forth. And so for us, it really comes down to the people. It's really people because there are partners at the end of the day that's that's what we look at and what we think a lot about is you know how can we you know support these entrepreneurs and their journey building their business and a company like cytotherics is going to get really big and sell someday that path is known it's not going to be a multi-generational business i wouldn't make sense for them it's a very uh in need medical uh technology company that's literally going to save lives someday. Um, but you've got on the other spectrum companies like Mercury Mosaics and Babies on Broadway and Foreverance, where maybe they don't want to sell for cash someday. Sure, I suppose eventually, they will, right? Well, eventually, right, right. It it could it it for the vast like majority of them it, that would happen. But they don't. They're not time constrained where it has to be the next three to five years or whatever the case may be. Oh, okay. I see. 10 or 20 years or whatever fits their time frame. Yeah. So these businesses that you're, you're coming across, do you have to sell them essentially to the investors or the investors picking and choosing which companies that you have that they're interested in investing in or. Hill Capital Corporation is the management company, and then Hill Capital Fund is the fund. But as the management company, we're identifying companies to invest in and underwriting that. And so by the time we bring it to an investment committee meeting, the investment committee is very aware of our pipeline companies we're looking at. But by the time we bring it to an investment committee, um, they're really just making sure we've done our work, like background checks and have done the financial model and that everything makes sense uh, for kind of like a final check and a final vote. But All when right. we make a commitment and we give someone to term sheet, we're good for that half a million to a million dollars, um, you know, absent some red flag that would come up in due diligence. Sure. Fair. Yeah. Tell me, you know, you raised an interesting uh, segue here about paperwork. I yes. imagine putting together an investment fund from a, SEC point of view and all that jazz is not as easy as just sticking your shingle out there saying, Hey, I'm an investment fund. Throw me some money. We'll throw it at some businesses. We'll make some cash together. It'll be easy. Right. I imagine there's some red tape you got to deal with. Yes. Tell us about so, that. Yeah. So Hill Capital Corporation actually started, um, we are in, in generation one of Hill Capital Corporation, we started as a business development company, a BDC, and we filed with the SEC. It's a story onto itself. 
but it is difficult. It's expensive. There's uh, very detailed reporting to be a publicly filing company with the SEC. Um, and so it's, it's very few can really do it and especially do it well. Uh, so that's a whole world onto itself. Um, and then the vast majority of capital in the private space are private funds. You know, you think about kind of like the venture funds and, you know, the fund that like Generator has and others, that's just all, you know, private fund and they don't have to do, you know, the traditional filings with the SEC like um, some of the big the big funds do, like BlackRock and KKR and so on and so forth. They do not. Okay. I wasn't aware of that. Okay. It all it all depends on the regulatory uh, framework in which they've chosen to operate. So okay. we could spend a whole hour talking about that, but it it really depends on the framework of which the which they are choosing to operate. If it's a very closely held uh, investment fund, you know, some friends and so forth, like you described, I mean, that can be very informal. They can kind of do what they want, but if you start bringing in outside investors and people you don't know very well, that gets into a whole different realm of legal and regulatory compliance that one needs to abide by. All right. Where do you guys fit in there? We are very closely and privately held. Okay. Yes. Gotcha. So the investors, you're not just putting out a newspaper ad. No, or... gosh, no. Or I don't know, we are not a newspaper ad, but no, you know what yeah. I mean? There's a big billboard saying, hey, throw yeah. some money at us. No, it's, it's very closely held. Uh, it, it's a very small group. So, Gotcha. How or when did you start this? So my journey with Hill Capital uh, started in uh, 2014, um, and it really got off the ground in 2018. So I have a heck of a founder story myself for that first four years. Um, it... Uh, you know, it, it's tough. It's a slog. I mean, Hill Capital Corporation was a startup no different than any other startup. You know, there was a handful of us who put in our own cash and uh, I, I worked over 11,000 hours, basically uncompensated, pulling things together. Uh, you know, I put a lot of time and effort into it and, you know, use my savings to be able to, to, to do that and to fund this to kind of get it going. So, um, it's it's a journey onto itself. It's it's not easy to start a fund, and there's a lot of reasons why there aren't more funds like this. And I I wish there were, and I hope that we are an inspiration for more funds to become available because there's a lot of need in the private for private businesses to get more access to capital, and that was our driving motivation to launch Hill Capital. So, um, so what made you found this? Did you exit a different business, or or no, just fall into a bag of cash? I did not fall into a bag of cash. So <laughs> you never know, right? But yeah, no, that's all good. Um, I had, I have done well uh, without okay. a doubt, but I did not fall into a bag of cash. <laughs> that sounds fun. Uh, yeah, right. <laughs> so my my whole entrepreneurial journey started when I left uh, investment banking, and so I had been around deal making uh, the start of my career. That started with writing Wall Street research, doing investment models switching to the investment banking and advisory side. So doing fairness opinions, valuations for companies, um, IPOs, mergers, acquisitions, um, and just uh, uh, capital formation, broadly speaking. So I had all that background. And my founder story, James, was really around seeing how disconnected Wall Street is from Main Street. Mm. And it really bothered me because as a young person coming out of college, you kind of have this feeling like, everything in the world is already kind of figured out. And, you know, Wall Street is probably well suited to help all companies wherever they are. And to see firsthand how 
Wall Street has really become only available to companies that are doing over a hundred million in revenue and you know could be a billion dollar public company someday. Uh, it just was jarring to say the least. And so through my call it formation period when I was a young person, kind of you know cutting my teeth in the world of finance, I just realized like how broken the world was for entrepreneurs and small businesses. And that was really the underlying fire and motivation that I had to start what became Hill Capital Corporation. Got it. So is that so it sounds like you had some experience as far as looking at the back end of the businesses and very much so yes. things like that. So that had to help quite a bit. Yes. And then was it tough getting investors into your into the I don't the portfolio? I don't know what you call it. Yeah, bringing in what most would call LPs because a lot of funds have a LPGP structure, limited partners. But yeah, it was really hard. Um, you know, that's a lot of networking, a lot of connecting, a lot of, you know, sharing the vision and the story and so forth. And so I resonate with all founders that, you know, have to fundraise and bring money in. You literally have to have hundreds and hundreds of conversations to bring together the handful that are ultimately going to be investors. And that's been my experience. It's it's very tough. It's painful. It's scary. Um, it takes a heck of a lot of work and a lot of trust and faith that it's all going to work out in the end. And so uh, some companies are extremely lucky. And of course, those are the ones that grab the headlines. You know, somebody, you know, has a hot idea and they, you know, get investors in a heartbeat. But that's that's the fraction of 1%. Everybody else, 99 plus percent, they have to grind it out and scrape up their knees, you know, crawling around begging for people to listen and ultimately, hopefully to invest. So it's tough to fundraise. That's why I spend a good chunk of the book talking about fundraising strategy because I've lived it and, and I've helped people do it. And that's kind of my what I've been doing for pushing 30 years now. Nice. You know, it's interesting here in Madison, I imagine just like a lot of other places. Yep. They have uh, the startups, the generators of the world kind of thing, yeah. bringing some of these businesses together and educating the founders, all that jazz. And I have seen some crazy money get thrown at some companies that did not have a revenue model. And I am not in a position where I can throw millions of dollars at an investment, especially at a company that doesn't have a revenue model. And I've seen it first, well, maybe not firsthand necessarily, but at least watched it unfold over the course of years where, hey, this company raised $5 million. Yep. And then three to five years later, that company folded. And it blew my mind that there were investors that made that much money somewhere else that were throwing money at a business that didn't have a revenue model. So can you talk to me? I don't necessarily know what you guys are investing in, but why would a company or why would an investment people with money like that throw at a business that doesn't have a revenue model at all? James, I, I'm, I'm in the same boat. It, it took me two decades to look at and study and to figure out why that is. Okay. And I figured it out and I wrote about it in the book. It oh, tell me the Cliff's Notes version. Here. Yeah. It, it boils down to the magnetic vision. So the founder of that company that attracted a lot of money had a vision. And the reason why I use the, the qualifier magnetic is because it's one thing to have a vision, but it has to be a vision that can be articulated where it attracts others to it. And so right. the really good founders, the ones that raise a lot of money and grab a lot of headlines have a strong magnetic vision. 
you know, they're talking about like, if you think about like, uh, we could, we could talk about companies like Amazon, you know, Bezos had a hard time raising money early on, but when he was able to start articulating that it was not just about selling a few books online, it was about understanding and having the logistics and cracking the code there so he could expand into other products and why the word Amazon was used because it's the jungle and there's a lot there. Mm -hmm. That's where people got attracted to that and started to sync up and provide the investment capital that Amazon needed to be what it is today. That's that's the difference. That's why you see in Amazon, again, we could keep talking about because it's a great case study, even as a public company for many, many, many years up until recently was never profitable. Right. They got a lot of flack. And one of my, you know, one of the 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 um godfathers of, of the top of ground valuation, uh Demoteran, uh, he talked a lot about Amazon and you know, why is it that they have these huge valuations, multi-billion dollars when they had no, you know, nothing inside to be profitable? Well, it's because of Bezos and the magnetic vision that they had to keep building this. And that's what you're seeing with today. You know, you think about some of the biotechnology companies that this happens with the, the technology now AI, but they have a vision of what all of this could be someday. And that's what people are buying into. That's why they get monstrous um, valuations and big money. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. I suppose things like Uber that I think they're profitable and they weren't for a very long time. Right. They, but in the early days of Uber, you know, they, to think about like that business model, like really people are going to drive around their own cars and pick it up. And you know, th there's a great story about Airbnb, like really people are going to have people in their houses and so forth. But mm -hmm. those founders did a really nice job of being able to weave the story and say, look at, this is what the world can look like with this business model. And people start to buy into that. All right. And that's where valuation, that's what I talk about in the book, is that's where kind of valuation goes out the door in terms of like traditional valuation multiples or anything you want to, you know. Oh, because it'd be of, worthless. Well, it could be. It's either going to be worth a lot or nothing. <laughs> right. So that's where people yeah. are willing to make that bet. Yeah, it's just, it reminded me or has reminded me of the whole dot-com bubble back in the yeah. early 2000s when people would throw money at anything that mentioned the word internet. And, and there's the always something right? thing and all that kind of yeah, stuff. Yeah. It yeah. Was, I mean, it, yeah, in the eighties, it was the telecoms, you know, you go back through history, everything through history back in, uh, back in, you know, uh, you know, back a hundred years ago, you know what the stats are ridiculous. There's thousands, if not tens of thousands of car companies. Oh you yeah. Know, we happen to know a few of the survivors, you mm -hmm. know, Chrysler, Ford, you know, Pontiac, so on and so forth that became GM and, and Ford and so forth. But there were a bazillion car companies that were, you know, that people were putting money into and they were going public and on the stock exchange. So sure. That's fair. That's fair. I imagine back then it was easier to start easier, not necessarily easy, easy to start a car company. And it was the new exciting thing. Yeah. Horses were going away. Right. Yeah. So interesting. I think um, it's always hard to start a business. Uh, people, I, I, I think about that a lot because some people say, "Oh, it's easier today because you have the internet." And it's like, well, yes, maybe some of the access to things is easier. But on the flip side, it's as hard as it is as ever to get in front of you know potential customers. You know, yeah. The, the, it's yeah. It's, with there, if you have got an unlimited amount of money, you can solve a lot with you know buying marketing and stuff like that. But if one's oh, yeah. bootstrapping, it's really hard. 
Yeah, it reminds me of the movie um, Catch Me If You Can. Oh, sure. Yeah. When Leonardo DiCaprio's character was talking about how uh, it's easier to do essentially what he did now with the internet and stuff like that. But then I was sure. thinking, well, it's also easier for them to catch you because there's way more <laughs> breadcrumbs that you have to leave behind just with all the technology that we have. Sure. Exactly. They know where you are, when you are and what you're doing kind of thing. So instead of just taking stickers off of airplanes, yeah, slapping yeah. them on a check, whatever. Right. Um, so you, I guess you were in the, the wall street world. Now you're in this world. Do you miss the wall street world? No, not at all. Not even a little bit. <clears throat> no. Okay. <laughs> That's all right. It's all right. I, you know, I mean, the only reason I pause is because I think one is always tempted by, there's a lot of money to be made on wall street. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? Like there's, you know, those are some of the highest paying jobs in the world. Um, and they can come with glamour if one cares about traveling a lot and eating at the finest restaurants. But if that's not what motivates somebody like me, uh, it's, there's nothing to miss. Um, you know, what I, what motivates me and why I get up every morning is because I'm very motivated to speak with and help entrepreneurs. Okay. And, and that's, that's what I, I love to do. And I love to do this, this type of stuff where it's, sharing insights and being able to talk about entrepreneurship and helping people really think about like how to create and build valuable businesses and not get snookered out of them along the way. Cause there's right. a lot of bad actors um, out there. And so that's the stuff that motivates me day in and day out because I've for, for uh, my little career so far, I've seen a lot and most of it sends shivers down my spine. But you know, when you see a, um, an entrepreneur like Mercedes Austin with Mercury Mosaics, who's been grinding it out now for over 20 years and built a very successful business. There's nice. nothing better in the world than that, you know, and that's what I, I, I love to be around because that's what inspires me. And that's also why I'm a member of Entrepreneurs Organization, um, EO and, and EO Minnesota. I love being around entrepreneurs and, and, and seeing and sharing in their journeys. You know, it is, I love it as well. I mean, obviously we're on a podcast about it. Yes, <laughs> it is interesting when you talk to an entrepreneur versus when you talk to someone that is not an entrepreneur or doesn't even a lot of times you run into people that just don't even understand. Nope. Why would you start a business? Why don't you just get a day job kind of thing? It's it makes for very interesting conversations, either at a coffee shop or bar, whatever. Entrepreneurs, you can talk for hours because there's everybody's got stories yes. in that realm. Yeah. And I don't know. If, I mean, day job people, it's not to say they don't have stories, but. They're not as cool, I guess, <laughs> from my perspective, anyways. I, I, I agree. <laughs> Tell me the biggest success that you've had so far since you started this. I mean, you've been going, you said 20, 2010 or 2014. I apologize. You started well, 2014. Uh, 2014. And so, okay. and the fund and everything got off the ground in 2018. Okay. So you're talking decades since you started it, but you still got whatever, quite a few years under your belt as far as uh what investments turned into good investments so do you have any wins that are pretty cool i would point to go route that's one of them that is top of mind you know mike has been very successful selling his sports technology company uh technology to uh football teams and you have to help me with what what is go route go route uh basically has a uh basically uh, a smartphone that is utilized by players to study a route for practices. 
that's mm. where the, the original idea was. And so the big idea and where it's very successful is that the teams can run two to three times the amount of practice routes during a practice than they would if they're still using um, paper and whiteboards. Wow. And so it okay. saves people from huddling up and spending all that extra time so they can keep practicing, you know, the various routes. Uh, and so that's where he started. And then now that technology is literally expanding rapidly into softball and baseball and basketball uh, because there's now um, a lot of new rules that have been updated around the use of technology and communications in athletics. And so right. Goal Route is doing exceptionally well right now. So that's been a really fun one because uh, like most entrepreneurs, Mike Rowley had to pivot his business model several times. You okay. know, he started off being dependent on a Wi-Fi system and um, was able to work out deals with uh, the providers of, you know, the 5G networks, the cellular um, and broadband networks, and um, be able to make it so, you know, he could reduce and eliminate latency and issues around Wi-Fi. And so his journey uh, is quite inspiring. So it'll be fun to see what uh, where GoRoute um, ultimately lands, but it's doing very well right now. And it'll be fun when Mike can really share his story someday. That is cool. I look yeah. forward to having them. It's yeah. interesting you mentioned the Wi-Fi thing because I'm thinking, Mike, putting together this business plan and the cool thing, knowing the routes for football and finding the problem. Yep. And then his biggest issue is the technology thing like, oh, gosh, come on. <laughs> I got to learn about 5G now. Well, yeah, that that's a whole story unto itself. I mean, all of our companies that have, you know, a decent amount of technology within their product or service has some story like that because it's always being updated and changed and so on and so forth. And so uh, that that's there's always stuff coming out of left field. And I think it is and going to accelerate now with AI. Um, mm. And so that that's a part of the that's part of the risk. I mean, people think like software businesses are the best businesses to be in um, from, you know, from a upside potential. They definitely are, but they're they're not without their pitfalls and you know, and challenges and a lot of software businesses go under, especially if they have oh, to no spend doubt. money on sales and marketing. You no know, that's, that's, that's a big one because, you know, I, I'm now talking to a lot of people about like any pay-per-click advertising people are doing. I mean, the, the numbers have gotten bonkers. Um, people, you know, are now paying multi-dollars per click and that, that oh, and economics same. doesn't work as yeah. like they did. Uh, yeah. Really quick story there. I'd, uh, online flower ordering business for a hot minute yeah and, and pay-per-click advertising i thought was going to be the only way that we could get enough volume to make it worthwhile and right. i think it was 18 dollars a click or something like that it was stupid oh man so we stopped that business before we even got off the ground because <laughs> i was and i talked to different flower shops and i'm trying to figure out how are you making any money if you're paying 20 bucks each time somebody clicks, not even necessarily buys. That's that's insane. It was bizarre. So it, it is very I don't know they are. I mean, yeah, it's it, it worked really well when it was 15 cents a click and so forth and got yeah. hard at a couple bucks. And now, you know, being in the teens and 20 bucks a click. I mean, that's just ridiculous. Yeah, it's not not worth even going down that road. Yes, yeah. that's why way we're seeing... more channels. Yeah, that's why we're seeing companies like Foreverance that are, you know, very successful with. Um, you know, like social media posts because they make custom made urns 
So oh. they got really popular and a lot of national media attention when they made the ceramic urn for uh, Prince's estate when he died. They they built it of uh, Paisley Park. Oh, and wow. So they've got a lot of stories that, you know, people share about the custom urns. You know, a lot of it is the the classic car that dad or grandpa had that, you know, they, they get made into an urn or um, the, uh, you know, like their dog, their favorite dog or something like that. And so those really pull on the heartstrings and work really well for, for social media. But when you buy clicks to sell an urn, extremely difficult. <laughs> I bet. So, I bet. <laughs> yeah. Interesting website search there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So tell me when you first put this together, just to figure out the chicken and egg scenario, you're putting together Hill Capital. Yep. You got to get some investors, but I imagine you're talking to everyone, not necessarily knowing where their net worth is at. And you're going right. to find some investors that are like, hey, I got whatever, $500 to throw at you. And you're like, we're not quite there. Yep. Or how did you navigate those conversations? Because that had to be challenging right there. Yes, uh, it is. But, you know, there's two things that move money, James. It's trust and respect. And, and, okay. and uh, or excuse me, trust and emotion. So oh, you have to build go. trust and you have to build rapport, but there has to be an, an emotional hook too, to, to get people to, you know, to be able to write a check, um, whether it's in a fund or, you know, getting an investor in a business um, or a donation to a nonprofit. So it's really about that trust piece, you know, is the ability to build trust um, and, and to get them comfortable about what and how they think about where they're allocating capital. And so, uh, you know, there's an art to it. You know, I've been around um, finance and money my, my whole career. And so, um, you know, it, it's, it's never easy, but you, you, you do just build that trust and have people share insights about what they're looking to achieve and how, you know, you can be a solution set to, to what they're looking to do. So. Sure. Tell me, when you started this fund, how did your family react to you quitting your day job, so to speak? To starting this thing well i'm very blessed because uh my my wife ann and our kids were very young at the time so they didn't know any different <laughs> but uh, my uh my wife ann has been very very supportive and she's the opposite of me like she does not like uh working for small businesses she loves to work for big corporations she works for fortune 500 fortune 5 companies mm -hmm. um you know like around the twin cities and so uh but as an entrepreneur, you know, your, your most important co-founder is often your, your spouse, or your loved one. And, and right. for me, Anne was definitely, you know, my most important co-founder and be frank about it. You know, it was her, her income and definitely her healthcare that allowed me to go try these things and to try to get them off the ground. Cause if I didn't have that as an entrepreneur, it's nearly impossible. I mean, the healthcare alone, I was talking to an entrepreneur today, you know, it's always the same thing, but getting healthcare insurance for, for somebody that doesn't have W-2 income is extremely difficult and oh, yeah. expensive. And it's a yeah. real problem in, in, in our society. So. Yeah. It's uh, funny so, that you say yeah. that. I just heard a stand-up comic talking about this yesterday and he's like, Hey, I forget he was starting his bit. And he said, Hey, I don't have health insurance because I'm an American. <laughs> yeah. It was kind of funny. And even my wife, um, when I first started my business in 2006, on her LinkedIn profile, she put uh, chief health insurance provider or something like oh, that. Oh, that's good. Yeah. She's a teacher. So she didn't, her LinkedIn was 
useless to her, I think, or all but useless. <laughs> so it's funny. They might still be well, there. Well, te- teachers get great health care uh, coverage, in, in, largely speaking. So that's good. We've got a company we invested in called Solarte Health that provides health insurance. And their biggest customer base are uh, is uh, teachers because they provide much more affordable access to health care than um, traditional plans. It's usually about 50% less because they have a network of independent providers. So, oh, wow. I get it. I, yeah. I mean, it's, we've seen a lot. And actually, in your hometown, um, Madison, we invest in Beam Healthcare that provides. Oh, really? Medicine. Okay. And, and they actually have a service uh, that you can purchase as an individual or as a small business where you can yeah. get telemedicine services. And we utilize that at Hill Capital. I, you know, it's funny. I met them. Oh man, that's been a few years. Yes, I, I always think like, was it pre-pandemic? Dr. Suraju Patel. Yeah, uh, wonderful, wonderful entrepreneur. Yeah, that's interesting. I was trying to get them on the podcast, but that was, I mean, probably when we first started. Yes, years ago. So yeah, interesting. Yeah, Suraju is 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 worth uh, talking about and are talking with and getting to know and sharing insights because that's a whole topic onto itself. You know how to navigate healthcare, especially for small businesses and entrepreneurs. So, Oh, it's a huge deal. You, you kind of take it for granted if you're healthy or you just run in by the seat of the pants with your business. So you can't really think about, or you're not focusing yep. on anything else yep. until something happens from the health point of view and uh, things get expensive, I guess, exactly. off the fast. Yeah. So I would, I would encourage people to, you know, take a look at those things and get to know them. Cause that's a big part of the entrepreneurial journey. Fair. Totally fair, but it's just the reality. (laughs) No, Patrick, I know we don't have a ton of time left, but I want to talk to you or ask you if I'm a small business and I want to reach out to a company like yours to raise money. What are some of the things that I should have prepared when I reach out to you? Or what are the things that you are looking for in a business? Well, one of the biggest things we chatted about this is really having that vision um, understood and be able to articulate that and truly being genuine to what you want to achieve as a founder. And I say that because, unfortunately, in my opinion, a lot of accelerators and other experts out there in this world will coach entrepreneurs to really speak about the business as it could pertain to that investor. We -hmm. really like to hear what is the interest of the founder and what they're looking to do. Because Mm. for us, you know, if an entrepreneur wants to build a business and you know, have it be a lifestyle business and maybe hand it over to the next generation. That's fine. Um, and we we embrace those stories. But a VC would shut that conversation down in a few minutes. Okay. So what's important to us is that the founder be really genuine in who they are and what they're looking to do. That goes a long way for us. And then, of course, we want to know the things about, you know, where's the business today? Um, what is it, you know, how much money does it need? It doesn't need to be precise, but have a sense of like, Hey, you know, this business probably needs a million dollars to get to profitability, or it needs $40 million because, you know, they have to do all these complicated, expensive things, but having kind of a pulse on what that looks like is very beneficial. Um, and then really just kind of cutting to the chase of like, you know, the economic engine was what I call it is, you know, really articulate. We sell a widget. It's costs us this to make, we sell for this and we have to spend some money in sales and marketing to get out in the marketplace, but cutting to the point kind of like, I think 
you know, people have a love hate with Shark Tank. And I think that's actually a, from the standpoint of hearing those entrepreneurs come in and, and, and answering the types of questions that the sharks have, I think is a, is a pretty good uh, indicator of what's important and kind of be ready for. Yeah. 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 I, I mean, I'm a fan of Shark Tank. I think there's unnecessary drama, but I think <laughs> maybe they just do that to make the show more entertaining. Right. Or, or something. Do, but no, for the most part, I think that's really, for the most part, all you really need to know. I guess yeah. as long as the numbers that they're giving are legit. Yeah. And, and the other just... thing I would say, James, I, I I love and appreciate your question because um, I think it's really important that entrepreneurs not get too hung up on making things perfect mm. because perfect gets in the way of execution. And when it yes. comes to talking to investors, they need to get going. So if somebody wants to, you know, I don't mind if somebody is a little bit early and reaches out to us, we'll get to know them and talk to them and say, hey, figure these things out and let's, you know, reconnect in six months or whatever. Completely fine with us. Yeah. Um, if somebody waits too long to have everything perfect and all their talking points perfect, that's going to get in the way. And actually, we would see that as a red flag that they're overanalyzing things. It's I call it analysis paralysis. Oh, um, that's fair. Entrepreneur needs to execute and move. So, yeah, fast decisions, fast decisions. When you have invested in a company, I guess we, we touched on this with the exit a little bit. Do you advise companies about when it's time to pull the chute or sell, or do you more or less just leave that in their hands? We leave it in their hands, but we meet with our portfolio companies on a monthly basis. So we don't take board. Oh, you seats. do? Okay. Yep. We don't take board seats. We don't dictate strategy. We're not overseeing and having opinions on hiring and firing and all that stuff, but we do get together with them monthly and we simply ask, how's it going and what can we do to be helpful? And we've right. had a number of companies that said, hey, we're starting to think about an exit and we'd really like you know some help thinking about this. Now we have 56 ambassadors today and a couple of them have very strong M&A background, have literally led corporate development for Fortune 500 businesses. And they've made multi-billion dollar acquisitions, divestitures, and so on and so forth. And so we can provide them with access to people that can share insights on, hey, here's what the things you want to think about as you, you know, prepare the company for a sale. You want to have your, you know, processes in place and documented and so on and so forth. And we also host events where we help educate and provide those insights. But it's when our portfolio companies come to us and ask for it. Um, we're, we'll, we'll give them all the help that they need. Nice. I love it. Well, Patrick, thank you so much for being on the show. Yeah. Thank you, James. It's really fun to, to share the insights and to have the conversation with you. Yeah, absolutely. Where can people find you? Yes. I'm easy to find on LinkedIn. So Patrick E. Donahue, Hill Capital Corporation, and anybody can reach out to me directly, Patrick at hillcapitalcorp.com, H-I-L-L-C-A-P. A uh, I T A L C O R P dot com. So Patrick at hillcapitalcorp.com. And uh, I promise we'll get back to you, especially mention that as on the podcast. So happy nice. to be helpful to anybody in your audience. So, I love it. I appreciate yeah. it. Thank you so much, Patrick. Yeah. Thank you, James. This has been Authentic Business Adventures, the business program that brings you the struggle stories and triumphant successes of business owners across the land. We are locally underwritten by the Bank of Sun Prairie. If you're listening or watching this on the web, if you could do us a huge favor, keep the algorithms happy, right? That's thumbs up, subscribe, and of course, share it with your entrepreneurial friends, especially those that may need a little extra cash 
to get their business growing. My name is James Kateman and Authentic Business Adventures is brought to you by Calls on Call, offering call answering and receptionist services for service businesses across the country on the web at callsoncall.com. And of course, the Bold Business Book, a book for the entrepreneur and all of us available wherever fine books are sold. We'd like to thank you, our wonderful listeners, as well as our guest, Patrick Donahue, the founder and CEO of Hill Capital Corporation. Patrick, can you tell us that website one more time? Yes, hillcapitalcorp.com. And they can also find me at breakoutvaluation.com. Breakoutvaluation.com. That's right. You have the book. Yes. So where can the book be found? The book is uh, on Amazon. It's on Audible. Um, I recorded it. Uh, I narrated it myself, which was a fun experience. But nice. on uh, Amazon and Barnes and Noble and everywhere, uh, books are found. I love it. I appreciate it. Past episodes can be found morning, noon, and night. The podcast link found at drawincustomers.com. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next week. I want you to stay awesome. And if you do nothing else, enjoy your business.